0: Most times we intuitively decide what we want to do and then we find reasons to justify our decision. We tend to value things that we have more than things that we don't have. The vast majority of us have a preference for the way things are. We feel a loss twice as much as we feel a gain.
1: How many decisions have you made today? Well, you know, researchers estimate that we make thousands of decisions every day. Small ones, medium size, and of course, big ones, right? Stephen Grabener, founder of Perceptic Coach share some powerful insight with us today. He's a leadership coach, pastor, and really an expert on decision-making. As missional entrepreneurs, we want to hear what he has to say. We want to make good decisions, right? Sometimes it's not that easy, though. We have biases, prejudices, our brain plays tricks on us. So what do we do? I started this interview with a personal and challenging question. What's the worst decision
0: you've ever made so that's a tough question um, first of all we can make a good decision by following a good process and it can turn out poorly because of things outside of our control and we can make a bad decision without good processes and it could turn out great because of things outside of our control and we tend to judge by the end results However, you know to take your question, I would say that something that triggered a bad decision because there was a bad process was um, there was an organization that was going through crisis. In fact, the entire board res- resigned except for two people, and then they put me on the board to reestablish the board, and we had a small group of five people and kind of unwind the difficulty that the institution was in, and I'm not going to name it for a variety of reasons. But in that trying to figure out what happened or what we should do with that organization, it was a point in my experience where I I tended to approach board meetings looking at the problem, relying on system one, making a fast decision, this is, I think, what the best thing is, and and then kind of trying to go that direction. And so, unfortunately, because of that process, there was a lot of heartache, there's a lot of bitter people, um, we had to sell a lot of pieces of property, and, you know, there's just, there's been ancillary Poor will, not goodwill, that resulted from the way that entire situation was handled. And obviously, since I was the chair, a lot of it is my responsibility and comes back to me. So we may have decided to do the exact same things, but the process should have been much different. The process could have been a bit slower, could have gotten more impact from more people, perhaps not that we were trying to hide anything but perhaps could have been more transparent, perhaps there was another solution that we weren't seeing and and so I would say that ranks up there in one of those things I would like to redo
1: Hmm. So what's behind all that? How do we make decisions? What influences us? And is it
0: important to think about decisions? It's tremendously important for us to think through the process by which we make decisions. And uh, again, depending on who you talk to, there's a lot of complexity. Um, One of the big hindrances to us when we're making decisions, and I'm We're talking about major decisions, not what am I going to have for breakfast? What kind of shirt am I going to put on today? But um, our larger decisions that might impact a business, might impact a ministry, might impact a direction in life. Um, One major factor that we often discount, we don't take into play is how much is outside of our control. So um, when we make decisions... One very clear tool to help have a better decision is to think through, what's the process I need to make a decision? Um, Let me give you an example, okay? So, um, in the United States, uh, American football is a major sport. And uh, several years ago, there was a Super Bowl. It's the biggest game of the year. And the Seattle Seahawks, were just about at the goal line they were just about to score and against the New England Patriots they had a great running back and the coach instead of called a running play he called a passing play well it turned out the pass was intercepted and the Patriots ended up winning the game everybody started jumping on his decision now if his decision had worked everybody would have been, oh, that was a great call. Too often we look at the outcome of a decision and think, oh, that was a good or a bad decision. Where really what we need to do in the decision-making experience is to think through what kind of process do we want for our decisions. Because oftentimes there are external events that are, are totally beyond our control. Oh, yeah. Thanks for sharing.
1: Um, so how does that influence the way I run a startup? We know we have people listening who have their own missional businesses. And uh, how does that look like focusing more on the decision and not so much on the, out- on, on the outcome?
0: So one thing that might be helpful, particularly in uh, the startup realm, is the understanding of the tricks our, our minds play on us. When we make decisions, these have been well studied. Uh, there's an author by the name of Daniel Kahneman and Amos Tversky. They wrote a book called Thinking Fast and Slow. And they identified two systems in the way we make decisions one is very quick, very fast, and makes decisions quickly and easily. And most of the time, it works fine. But then there's System 2, which is much more slower, more methodical. Instead of System 1 and System 2, some people call this um, our hot and our cold cognition. A lot of different names for it. Unfortunately, what happens to us is um, our, our brain, in an effort to conserve energy creates a lot of shortcuts, and these shortcuts create biases, they create mental tricks that we play upon ourselves. Let me give you an, an example if I can. Particularly if you're in a startup realm, and you're thinking, okay, you know, what should I pay to purchase this item? You know, if you're um, in a real estate startup or if you're an entrepreneur and you're starting a business, you might look at a variety of different things. But there's a very strong bias called anchoring. And anchoring is the effect where the first number given to you impacts your mind. And irrationally, affects how you make other decisions. Um, Let me kick that out a little bit longer. There's been uh, lots of experiments with this where um, people played on a roulette wheel and it was fixed. And if you got a high score, that would predispose you to thinking of a higher number when you thought of a number of countries on the continent of Africa, let's say. And if you had a lower score, it would predispose you to thinking of a smaller number of countries. And this has been tremendously well-researched. It's impossible to ignore it. Wow. What, what helps
1: me in this process then if I, if I have this background information? Um, should I ignore the
0: numbers or uh, what, what do you think helps in this case? So one of the, one of the key help tools to help is to create a a checklist of sort. Uh, There's a really interesting book by a physician. Um, His last name is Gwande, I think, G-W-A-N-D-E-L, something along those lines. His first name is Atu, A-T-U, and it's called The Checklist Manifesto. He's got a lot of interesting stories about how checklists are used in a variety of situations and how they help slow down the process. So, for example, if um, from experience that I've I've had, if we are looking to purchase a a property, commercial property, we have a little checklist. What are the things we need to look for? What's the numbers we need to look for? Now, the the price that is for offer, whatever it is, it impacts us. Oh, okay, well, I suppose it's worth that. And we have to create a checklist which can keep us focused and say, okay, these are the parameters that we're going to stay in. And so that helps mitigate it. Another thing is perhaps don't tell somebody else on your team what the price is or what the number is that you're kicking around. Let them do some research and then come to their own conclusions to kind of come back at you. Um, So being aware of it is is vital. Another way to undermine the anchoring effect is to use anchoring to anchor the other person lower. So, you know, in a negotiation, somebody might throw out a high number, you might come out with a really low number to try to anchor them the other direction. But again, being aware of it and then creating some kind of a, a checklist for how you will value certain things. So that's one that could help in the anchoring bias. But along the same lines is creating some kind of a process that you can use in your decision-making experience. Wonderful. What would be uh, uh, an example?
1: I'm not sure if you have one uh, from your own life that you can maybe share. I'm sure you've made some major decisions in your life when it comes to maybe... Buying things or or moving somewhere, right? Um, um, how did you make those decisions? Uh, you, maybe you can share a personal one or or a business example, whatever comes to your mind first.
0: Sure, um, business one might come to mind first, but the personal ones are really important. But let's let's do the business one first of all. Um, in a, in a, any big kind of a business decision, startup, what am I going to do? It's really important to get good impact, input from a small variety of people. Now, the number of people that you're getting as counselors should be manageable, but they should have different perspectives. And that's really what you're going to want to look for is, you know, some people are a bit more pessimistic. Some people are a bit more optimistic. And so if you get different voices, that's helpful. Another thing in um, a process, so for example, just recently, my son and I purchased uh, some real estate and he'd been working on the deal. So he'd been working in the numbers. So he put his time and effort into it. And naturally he has more of a an attachment to them because I haven't been working with it. So when he gave them to me, I was like, okay, I'm going to be Mr. Pessimistic and I'm going to go what's the worst case scenario and is this really a good idea? And then I drew up a worst case scenario and we both sat together and said, "Yeah, this is still a good idea considering a, a how I want to say this, a reasonable worst case scenario, you know, not the whole society collapses, but a reasonable worst case scenario." And then what's the best side? So, you know, having somebody else check you, that's an important part of, the, of a process. Um, and that was an important part of purchasing a this particular property, which has a lot of risk to it, but the upside is tremendous and we've minimized the risk. So that's that's another aspect, always trying to think, okay, what are my risks? What are my rewards? How do I balance those out? Or... Can I survive if my thesis is wrong? But, you know, on personal levels, we've made some major life decisions. One of them was to move to Africa. And uh, I was pastoring at the time. It called me to leave my employment, my insurance, my retirement, and take my family, three kids, 13 and younger, you know, and move to the country of Zambia. And so on a personal level, like there, there's lots of dynamics that we, we think through. Unfortunately, oftentimes we put the emphasis on decision-making on our cognitive ability. Okay, I'm just going to sit here and I'm going to make a list of all the pluses and minuses, which is a helpful exercise. But we, we tend to think decision-making is only a mental activity and not an emotional activity. And that's wrong. Um, emotions play a very important role in the decision-making process. So it's important to tap into those emotions, and we did that. You know we kind of looked at the pros and cons in terms of how it affect us financially. Um, but then we also said, well, what's our intuition saying? What feels comfortable? in our stomach, you know, or what's my heart telling me out. That expression is overblown a lot today, but it is an important aspect. Why is it important? Because, you know, we are complete beings mentally, physically, spiritually, and we're not separate. And oftentimes our body picks up things or our brain is trying to communicate with our body before the, cognitive faculties pick up what's going on and so trying to make a decision where you think okay how does this feel for me am i comfortable with this and for us we all felt comfortable and so we jumped in it was a great nine years nine and a half years wow wonderful
1: We'll take a short break and uh, be right back. And uh, Stephen and I will talk about the uh, cognitive, the emotional, also the spiritual dimension of a decision-making process. And after that, Stephen will share a few more things that uh, kind of the mental tricks we play on ourselves when when we are facing decisions. So stay with us.
0: Hive is your number one platform for missional entrepreneurship. Start, grow, and scale your faith-based business with us day by day. You can find us on Instagram, Facebook, and YouTube. Just look for Hive INT. That's Hive International. Hive INT. Let's change this world and the world to come together.
1: We're back here on the Hive Podcast. You're listening to Vincent Boujour and Steven Grabener talking about decisions. Now, when we make decisions, our brain is active and our body also plays a role, right? We need to pay attention to the cognitive and the emotional part and, of course, also the spiritual aspect, the spiritual dimension, the spiritual part. Now, I wanted to ask you, Stephen, how do we balance these three things and how important are they?
0: Well, unquestionably, Vince, you know, spiritual dimension um, for believers is inescapable. Uh, Whenever we're in a... A process of making decisions prayer is important at the beginning during the middle at the end and um, oftentimes in in board meetings where we've had a particularly naughty issue we might stop and pray um, and take a breath short break and then come back and oftentimes have more clarity And unquestionably, I think the spiritual influence there is important. At the same time, the very act of prayer from a uh, neuroscience perspective, from a you know, physical perspective, helps calm us down as well. We're obviously getting in touch with our creator and our savior and certain stresses leave us, and that actually sets the condition for helping us make better decisions. Because when we're anxious, when we're uh, nervous, when we're faced with risk or faced with loss, it tends to shut down the creative centers of the brain. So uh, just to be very clear, prayer has an influence where God speaks to us speaks to our heart. That's why, you know, psalmist says, be still and know that I am God. But I think because God created us this way, or at least since the fall, we're created this way, we have this kind of impact where at times our creative abilities shut down. Approaching God in prayer is part of the whole holistic, with a W, process of coming before God, hearing His voice, and being more able to hear his voice because our minds are becoming clearer and we can listen better. Also, in Desire of Ages, I remember many years ago, um, I was faced with a decision. I'd just become converted and I was scheduled to go away to university and wasn't sure that's what I wanted to do or what I should do. So, someone shared with me a quotation in the book Desire of Ages. The quotation says something like this, that after presenting our case before God, those who decide not to do anything in any lines to displease God will know after presenting their case before him exactly what course to pursue. So I took that promise and I said, God, I don't want to displease you. I want to follow you. I'm not sure what I should do here. And I prayed and... You know, I didn't get a text message and I didn't get an email, Um, didn't have it in those days, didn't get a phone call. I didn't even get an impression. So I was like, oh, okay. But I kept at it. I kept praying and I kept praying. And I felt eventually that the Lord was telling me, you could go on either path. You could make either decision and I'm going to be with you whichever one you take. Now, that's not always the case, obviously, if I'm faced with a moral issue. But in my situation, that is how the Lord spoke to me. And so I said, okay, I'm going to go to the university, which was perhaps more fraught with certain concerns or dangers. But I went and, you know, I was baptized and had a great walk with the Lord. So, um... You know, it is important for us to pray. He will tell us, but at the same time, part of that process is calming down to listen to His voice. And how does He communicate with us? Except through the medium of the brain. That's the only way God communicates with us. So it's it's not like if we pray, all of a sudden we're going to get, you know, a letter dropped on our desk or something. God's going to use who we are to communicate with us. And trusting him to do that is an important aspect.
1: How, from a spiritual perspective, you know, when I, when I quote Jeremiah 17.9 and I think about the deceitfulness of the heart, um, how, yes. <laughs> <laughs> I, I hope you can you understand what I'm saying, right? How, how do we know then uh, that the emotional, the feelings that we have when it comes to that decision, how do we know that these feelings are coming from our brain or we are connected to our brain and to what God actually says and wants us to do.
0: Yeah, and I'm really glad you brought up that verse. Um, I I thought about it earlier and then it slipped my mind. Thank you for thinking about it because it's true. The heart's desperately wicked and who could know it, you know? And and so that's part of our problem is, okay, I want to do what's right. I think I want to do what's right. No, I want to do what's right, but my heart's wicked. Lord, you're going to need to give me a new heart but i'm not going to trust my heart at all and so you know there we live you know it could almost be paralyzing oh well, i can't trust my heart so i don't know what i'm going to do but we do need to trust god and we do need to trust that he's going to communicate with us and if we're making decisions that are broadly in harmony with his will he's big enough to change our missteps if we were to make one so, you know, the heart's uh, wicked, desperately evil. Who can know it? If my emotions are telling me, yeah, you know, leave my wife for this younger woman, well, that's clearly counter to God's word. That That is not God communicating with me, no matter what might be happening physiologically or something or being young or whatever age it is. And so I think knowing the word of God is our, our fortress, our protection. At the same time, I've been in lots of meetings where different people will quote different Ellen White comments as justification for their position. And again, that just needs to show, okay, we need broad input. There's this reference, but there might be a balancing reference over here. For example, Ellen White has comments about small, home-like sanitariums. And I remember being in a conversation about that. Somebody was really pushing small, home-like sanitariums. Well, when she wrote that, she was encouraging the opening, I think it was, of Paradise Valley in Southern California, which had 100 beds in it. So in her mind, small, home-like could be 100 beds. Um, so, you know, that's not what I think of. If I think of small home, like I think of four. So, you know, sometimes our perceptions are wrong. And that's why we need constant feedback from other people. Mm, yeah, absolutely. Now, before we go to
1: the mental tricks, I wanted to ask you something else. Do you think it's better to sometimes make no decision or to make a wrong decision? What do you think?
0: it depends on the circumstance. Um, Again, in the writings of Ellen White, she has a comment where long delays tire the angels and it's better to make a wrong decision than no decision. So um, that's, you know, that's startling. Um, A lot of us just get paralyzed. The truth of the matter is if we make no decision, we are actually making a decision and we're making the decision for the status quo, and um, actually, that's one of the mental tricks we play: is the preference for the way things are now. We're going to get into those in a little bit, but you know that is a decision, and um, you know we need to weigh things. But at some point, we need to move forward, and here's an important help in making decisions when we're we're kind of in that position where we're trying to decide, you know, can I decide or am I still going to say no? A question to ask ourselves is, what's hindering me from making the decision? Do I need more information? And if I need more information, what is that information? How can I get it? How will it help me make a better decision? at some point, more information is generally not helpful. Like, you know, there's a kind of like a graph where the more information you have, your, um, the quality of your decision goes up to a certain point. And then you're just like fine-tuning the very edges. And so discerning where that is is an important point. Um, obviously, if there's a lot of risk involved, we want to try to get a broad picture. But oftentimes, there's a tremendous things, as I, I said earlier, that are outside of our control. And, you know, one thing that I'd, I'd like to bring out earlier, you, you talked briefly, or we spoke briefly, about the connection of emotions and decisions. Clearly, we don't want our emotions to run away with us and just... Uh, You know, whether it's diet, it's relationship, whatever. I'm not saying that our emotions are always the right indicator. But when we're trying to make a decision, it's important for us to realize the connection between the emotions and the decision-making process. There's a a gentleman by the name of Damasio who wrote a book called Descartes' Error. And in the book, he talks about several people who have had um, problems physical problems, either they had surgery or some kind of a trauma, some kind of an accident, and the emotional parts of their brain were impacted. One man in particular, when the emotional center in his brain or part of the emotional part of his brain was impacted, he found it impossible just to make decisions Now, we'd be thinking like, you know, it's like, and decisions like, what am I going to wear today? Things that are not overly emotional. And he discovered, Damasio did, of this connection between the cognitive functions and the more emotional functions and how they influence one another in the decision-making process. So this whole idea of, um, you know, I'm just going to be very Spock-like and make my decision in a logical way is very, very rare. Most times we intuitively decide what we want to do and then we find reasons to justify our decision. Um, Very counterintuitive. Oh, yeah. I can relate to that. I don't know if anyone else listening to this uh, thought
1: of a recent decision and thought about uh, the way it actually works. Yeah, that's right. And we know from, you know, you know, marketing um research that you know every decision to buy something to purchase something right is a totally emotional decision so um uh i I don't think that got better with the internet so um or changed at all right so let's talk a little bit about mental tricks now um can you share with us more tricks that the brain plays on us when we make decisions you've been mentioning anchoring then you've been also mentioning that um kind of Sticking with the status quo is also one trick. Um, maybe you can start with the latter one and elaborate a little on that and then share some some other tricks.
0: Sure. So status quo effect is that the vast majority of us have a preference for the way things are. And this happens, I, I meet this a lot when I work with leaders or entrepreneurs about making change. So change is is always difficult for most people, um, unless, of course, I'm initiating it. But even then, change can be difficult. And that's because we know what's going on. And we have a bias, a bent, a mental trick toward preferring what we know. It diminishes risk. And so, okay, here we are. And we're going to try to do everything to keep things the way they are. Now, a way to circumvent that is in the decision-making process is to maybe ask yourself or get a group of people to think if we were creating things now would we make them the way they currently are oftentimes the answer is no and if the answer is no is like, well what would we create if we were creating things and So, you know, that tried to put a little distance because you're just imagining. But if we were going to create the situation, what would it look like? Um, Another thing, another question that helps undermine the status quo bias is, you know, what is the best long-term solution to this problem? By giving it a longer time horizon, that also helps to minimize it. And again, just being... Aware of the status quo bias is um, helps us. You know something that the status quo uh, bias also works with is another bias that I'm just going to call it the ownership bias, and it, it works a little bit like this: that we tend to value things that we have more than things. That we don't have. In other words, just by it being mine, it has an increased value. And there's lots of studies done with this where they gave somebody a cup, you know, two-dollar cup, and they're like, "Okay, so how much do you want to sell your cup for?" Well, I'm not going to sell it for more than five dollars, even though it's just a cup. Um, but the the very aspect of ownership creates this sense of greater commitment to it. So as I mentioned earlier, my son who was working on this one financial deal, he, he owned it, I didn't. And so I had a little bit more distance. Um, another bias that often comes up is the sunk cost bias. And the sunk cost bias is simply this, that as we're putting time and money in something, it's much more difficult for us to stop because of what we've already invested. So let's say I'm an entrepreneur and I'm working on a project and I've invested, you know, weeks of my time and a good chunk of my financial resources and I'm beginning to think this isn't going to go. The sunk cost bias is going to make me think, no, I've already invested in this. If I stop now, everything's going to be lost. Well, the truth of the matter is, it's already lost. And um, you keeping going and digging a bigger hole isn't going to help the situation. And, you know, there are lots of examples of this. For example, um, basketball teams in the United States, NBA teams, if they pay a certain amount for a player, like in the draft or they get from another team, the more they pay for that player, the more playing time that that individual gets, even if they're not producing. So the amount that was paid for them influences the coaches, how much time I'm gonna let them play, even if he's not performing. That's part of the sunk cost. And again, with that, a helpful point there is to realize, okay, I've already lost this money. I just need to cut my losses and move on. Very difficult. And it's difficult because of another mental trick called loss aversion. And that loss aversion is that we feel a loss twice as much as we feel a gain. So, um... For example, if uh you know let's I'm just trying to think here, let's say you invested in a company and or an entrepreneur and they were doing their startup and your investment doubled, you know, you'd be like, "Wow, great." But if you lost half your investment, or if you lost your investment completely that would hurt you much more than you would be excited about the gain so loss aversion we're very risk averse you know we're constantly scanning the horizon you know is it safe here um so that's a that's another bias that tricks us up and and impacts us particularly for entrepreneurs because um you know We're afraid of the pain of a loss. And then marry that to the sunk cost effect. And I've already put everything into it. And then the ownership effect. It's very easy to see how we keep plugging down roads where really we should just say it's time to pull the plug on this and stop losing money. Wow. So my last question would be
1: when you talk to other entrepreneurs and leaders, um, and you've been just mentioning these biases, right? What do you recommend? How do we, is there a way out? Uh, do we, what can we do and, and what helps in that, uh, in, that, in, in
0: that situation? So things that are helpful are, uh, for me, the foundation of all leadership is self-awareness. And that's our biggest problem. We're Laodicean. Laodicea is self-deceived and self-satisfied. You do not know your condition. So self-awareness is foundation, foundation for good leadership, and it's a foundation of emotional intelligence. So beginning to pay attention to your particular makeup and which biases trip you up more. So becoming aware of that. And then, again, thinking of a process, whether you write the process down, make it a checklist, um, uh, again, having team members and, and asking people in a team meeting to actually criticize the idea. So for example, many years ago uh, under President Kennedy, uh, his brother was the secretary of state and he was, his brother Robert Kennedy was assigned to play the devil's advocate in certain meanings So he would come in and his, his position was to challenge what other people were saying, particularly military officials in this one illustration. And, you know, again, they're married. The military officials were married to their plan. They put money into it, time into it. They owned it. But his job was to say, okay, what about this? What about that? How can we expose the flaws? And so having somebody like that on your team is important. Another thing that I found helpful in meetings, at least, is as you're making a decision, frequently the decision will begin to pick up steam. You'll start going down a certain road and you'll start figuring out a certain solutions in a particular path, pausing at that time and saying, are there other paths we should pursue as well? Let's lay this, side, this one aside, and let's think of two or three other paths. Explore those for a little bit, and then say, okay, you know, now which one do we want? Because it's very easy in a group for a certain momentum to build, and those people that disagree just to become quiet, where if you intentionally give them the opportunity to express themselves, you'll have a better decision. So you know just clarifying all these things. This is how we make decisions here. Making some kind of a again a checklist of this is our decision making process will help tremendously. And that would be obviously very specific to you know the industry that people are in or the kind of decision that they're making. Mm-hmm. Um, So just kind of as we wrap up our our talk today, I'd encourage your listeners uh, on a few key points. One, think holistically, mentally and emotionally. Bring it to God. Then third, really think through the process you want and do this before you're in a major decision. Like, what things do I need to know to make decisions in my field? And one way to get help with that would be to ask other people in your field, ask other entrepreneurs, what have they learned? Ask other successful business people, you know, what have you? What, what's what do you do? Um, and you know, what are your shortcuts that you have that you use? So a variety of these, and kind of pull them together, make your make your process. And lastly, recognize you're not the creator. There are things outside of your control, good things and bad things do happen, um, that are outside of your control, and that is not necessarily a reflection on you, either good or bad, but it's part of the world that we live in. As Solomon tells us, our life is just a breath here. You know, we are not in control, the Creator is, but because He is in control, we can live joyfully, we can engage in circumstances, we can move forward. And lastly, if anybody's interested, um, yes, I'm happy. uh, Somebody can reach out to me via email or through my website. I'm happy to do a complimentary coaching session or I have a number of assessments that I can use if somebody wants to know about emotional intelligence or other things. Just feel free to communicate with me and I'm happy to try to help any way I can.
1: I'm sure that we can now make better decisions, whether it's for our missional business, our church, our family, or most importantly, our relationship with God. And let me tell you something, there's one decision you can make that's definitely going to be a good one. Subscribe to our podcast. We have powerful talks coming up every Monday, 6 a.m. Eastern time. You can listen on your favorite podcast platform, on Audioverse, or on our website, That's HiveInternational.org. My name is Vincent Bourgeois. It's been a pleasure to have you again. And you've been listening to The Hive Podcast.